You're listening to the Finding Christ in the Old Testament series, preaching by Pastor Rick Dressler at Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. 1 Kings chapter 22. This morning, Lord willing, we will finish the book of 1 Kings. We've been there for, I have no idea how long. We've been there for a long, long time. And we'll finish 1 Kings today, and then next week we'll take a break. Pastor Dan will actually be preaching on Sunday morning of next week, and then communion the following week. And then what I hope to do is to continue on into 2 Kings. So we're going to continue on, and you'll see today that this is really not the end of 1 Kings, but a break between the two. 1 Kings chapter 22 this morning, starting at verse number 39. If you recall the story so far, we learned last week of Ahab's death. Ahab, the ungodly, wicked king of the nation of Israel, the northern tribes. His end came just as God prophesied it would. In verse 39, we come toward the end of the chapter, and there's a lot of stuff that's just thrown at us in this, these last few verses, and we'll look at them this morning. Now, the rest of the acts of Ahab and all that he did, and the ivory house which he made, and all the cities that he built, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? And Ahab slept with his fathers, and Ahaziah his son reigned in his stead. And Jehoshaphat, the son of Asa, began to reign over Judah in the fourth year of Ahab, king of Israel. Now don't be confused. A bunch of names coming at you right now. We're talking now about two different nations. Ahab, the king of the northern tribe, Israel. Jehoshaphat, remember, the godly king from the southern tribe known as Judah. So he's telling us now about Jehoshaphat as well. Verse 42, Jehoshaphat was 30 and 5 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 20 and 5 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Zubah, the daughter of Shilhai. And he walked in all the ways of Asa his father. He turned not aside from it, doing that which was right in the eyes of the Lord. Nevertheless, the high places were not taken away, for the people offered and burnt incense yet in the high places. And Jehoshaphat made peace with the king of Israel. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoshaphat and his might that he showed and how he warred, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? And the remnant of the Sodomites, which remained in the days of his father Asa, he took out of the land. There was then no king in Edom, a deputy was king. And Jehoshaphat made ships of Tarshish to go to Ophir for gold. But they went not, for the ships were broken in Ezon-Geber. Then said Ahaziah, Hey, wait a minute. This is not. Ahaziah. It's a problem when you name your kids with vowels, right? It's always problematic. Ahaziah, the son of Ahab, began to reign over Israel and Samaria the 17th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, and reigned two years over Israel. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father and in the way of his mother, and in the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin, for he served Baal and worshipped him. 
and provoked to anger the Lord God of Israel according to all that his father had done. This is the word of the Lord, and may God bless the reading of his word this morning. Um, it's going to be a crazy day, I can tell already. So we'll just go with it. How many folks are here this morning, and you are a collector? You literally collect something. Anyone like that this morning? You're collectors. Okay, good. Um, what do you collect, Roger? Coins? Okay. Coins, fishing lures, for pleasure or for profit? Pleasure more than anything. Who else was a collector? Any, any? Steve, what do you collect? Coins. Any other collectors other than coins? Yes, Judy. Bells and thimbles. That's my collection as well. Um, <laughs> Dawn, what do you collect? Angels. Real angels or just, okay. So, so we understand this. We have people who collect, and sometimes just for pleasure. I like those things. And sometimes for profit. We believe that this collection sometime in the future will be of great value. I, too, was a collector years ago. At the age of 10, I had a novel idea that I would start a collection, and I started to collect beer cans. And my family was very good at supplying lots of empty beer cans. No joke. Uh, but I realized that they're more money if, they're not, if no one drank from them. Right? So, but I would collect beer cans, and I, and I had all these beer cans, and I would arrange them and stack them and display them. So proud of my collection of beer cans. Really, and I, I thought as a 10-year-old, this would be a great opportunity someday with this collection to make millions, millions of dollars on my beer can collection. That was my investment plan. It wasn't really good, right? There's, there was no money in that. It lasted for about two years, and that was the end of it. But I really believed that this could be some accomplishment that would bring me some type of revenue. The last six chapters of 1 Kings, we have been consumed with the interaction of Ahab, the evil king, uh, and his interaction with the word of God. It's all we have seen over and over again. And then we come to this last chapter, and in verse 39, there's this little blurb of a sentence or statement here. And here's what it says. After six chapters of dealing with Ahab, and the word of God, period. You can check it out, all those six chapters. Ahab and the word, Ahab and the word, how he responds, how he reacts, how he rebels. It's it's all about that. But verse 39 says this. Now the rest of the acts of Ahab and all that he did. So, So we've been reading for six chapters, not knowing that there's lots of things that Ahab did. The rest of everything that he did. Now watch this. And the ivory house which he made. An ivory house was made. And all the cities that he built. Six chapters, all about the word in Ahab. And now one small verse says, oh, and by the way, here is the rest of everything that he built. I mean, you have an ivory house. You have not a city, but cities that he built. And I have to say to you, if you just read that over, that's pretty impressive. Uh, Those are real accomplishments and great success. These are not mere beer can collections. 
We're talking about cities. We're talking about an ivory house, what that must look like. It's great. And then he continues, after he grabs our attention with all these great things that Ahab has done, all of his success, and he says, oh yeah, and by the way, at the end of the verse, if you really want to know about all these great things, read about them someplace else. Go to Better Homes and Gardens. You might see a picture there. Check out Israel's News and World Report, and they may tell you about the cities that he built. But as far as I'm concerned, the writer says, Ahab's accomplishments mean nothing. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, when I was in school, I really enjoyed history and English. I'm not very good at English, but I enjoyed English, as you can tell. Um, And I am curious and interested. Show me the pictures. Show me the sights. Show me all the things of the past. They really intrigue me. And yet the writer says, I am not concerned about any of those things. And we should take note of that. I want to talk to you this morning about accomplishments and compromises. And I want you to know right off the bat, as we look at this text, And as we examine the last six chapters and this one verse that says, oh yeah, and by the way, all these great things, I don't care about that. Understand this morning that the God of heaven, the God that we sang about, behold our God, this God ignores what we regard as significant. He ignores what we regard as significant or accomplishment or great success. And not just the silly stuff that we think is significant. I was listening, oh, maybe a month ago to CBC. And there's research now because there's this pandemic happening in the UK. What's happening is this. People are going online and they're buying outfits. I know that's not surprising to anyone here, all right? But they buy an outfit, they put it on, and then they take their cell phone, and take a selfie, you know, the duck, right? And they post it as the outfit of the day. Every day, the outfit of the day. And then what they do, and this is the real problem for um, um, the, the, uh, the real, that's not real estate, it's realtors, real, retail. Thank you. Thank you, Bruce, I'm glad you're here this morning. Stay with me. Okay. The real problem for retail is this. Once they take a picture, they send it back. Every outfit they're buying, they're snapping a selfie for the picture of the day and sending it back. And, and here's what was a kicker for me. The demographic, the biggest group that's doing this was not the teenagers. It was the 35-year-olds and above. Is that weird or what? Now, if you're here and it's you, just go ahead and tuck down a little bit in your seat. It's okay. Nice outfit. All right? You won't have it tomorrow. Right? So don't be pointing at your friends now, Josh. That's weird. Don't do that. Right? 
But, but the reason they do that, the researchers are finding, and we know this, is because there's this euphoric sense that I have more followers and more likes and people are looking at my stuff and it makes me feel successful. It makes me feel good. It makes me feel like I have value and worth and it's significant to me and it's silly. We are chasing the wind. Young people, young married folk, let me just talk to you real quick. Quit trying to keep up with the Joneses because the Joneses are in debt and they're miserable. And the stuff, the accumulating of stuff for stuff's sake, it will not bring you what you think. And so what? You have this and you have that. It's silliness. And so we, I hope we know this that this is silly, that my value and worth cannot come from clothing, it cannot come from a like or from a following or the more tweets or, or whatever. It doesn't work that way. But there's also significant things that are more serious to us that we, we place great value and worth on. Our social standing. Right? Don't you know who I am? Let me tell you about my education, my degree, the alphabet behind my name, or economic standing. Don't you know what I have? And in our eyes, these are our great accomplishments, our great successes, and what it means to finally arrive. And this morning, if I've not hit your stuff yet, you can fill in the blanks for your ivory houses and the cities that you think bring you value, worth, and success. Here's the problem. You might impress everyone around you, but God's really not concerned with it at all. Six chapters of Ahab's life, and he gets one sentence that says, oh, yeah, and by the way, this is how it goes. Listen to what God says in Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23. Thus saith the Lord, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, neither let the mighty man in his might Let not the rich man glory in his riches, but let him that glorieth glory in this, that he understands and knows me. This God of heaven ignores what we regard as significant. And and by the way, those things aren't bad. I'm not preaching. Get rid of every. I'm not saying that. But if you believe that your success and your accomplishments somehow grabs the attention of God, like it grabs your neighbor, like he's concerned about those things, he's not. He ignores what we regard as significant because in the end, in the end, nations fall. What's most democracies last 150, 200 years? Is that how it goes before they fall and crumble? Just what you know, as history tells us. Mm, Run out of time. Nations fall. Cities fall. Crumble, houses rot, cars rust. And no matter what we've done that the world applauds as success, it will pass away. All of it. All of it. And in the end, right? No matter who you are, in the end, We will all be in the same size hole. 
or vase or, or right? If you have a vase, that'd be cool to be in your own vase, I guess, on the mantle somewhere, if you're into that. The God of heaven disregards or ignores what we think is significant. Why? Because it's all passing away. All of it. Bob Wood. Bob, are you here? Yeah, Bob's here. Bob retired years ago from, um, where'd you work before, Bob? The landfill, right? Let me tell you something. Everything that you own today, everything, you know where it eventually lands? At Bob's old place. It ends up in the landfill. And eventually we will as well. Why? It's all passing away. Look at 1 John chapter 2 this morning. He ignores what we regard as significant. Why? Because it's all passing away. Now, when you read 1 John 2, and we can't spend a lot of time here today, but as you read it, understand this is a command. John is not making a suggestion to believers. He says, love not the world. Okay, now, just that you know, the world is not all people or the planet or creation. That's not what he's talking about. When John is using that phrase, love not the world, he is talking about that human system that says, right, um, I'm, I, I want to gratify and exalt myself to the exclusion of God. It is humanity that is alienated from God and hostile toward him. That system, that system that eventually says the only thing that matters in life is now. That's worldliness. What are we talking about? Away from God, doesn't matter. Self-gratification, self-exaltation, exclude God. He says, love not that system. Don't love the world. Don't be tricked by this idea that the only thing that matters is right now. Because it's not true. Because right now will end. Love not the world, he continues, neither the things that are in the world. If any man loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Christian, are you listening? If my love is consumed with this world, then the love of the Father is nowhere to be found in here. Something is amiss. For all that is in the world, the desire, the lust of the flesh, the desire, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but of the world. And the world passes away, and all the desires in it. We are really screwed up in our Western society, and in particular in North America. What we deem to be successful and our greatest accomplishments, what we give our life for, what we're, what we're pouring our time, our money, our resources in, what we think are great accomplishments or great success, God says they are passing away, and yet we are giving ourselves wholeheartedly to these things that cannot and will not last. C.S. Lewis has a quote, and it's, it's interesting. He says, that which is not eternal is eternally out of date. That which is not eternal is eternally out of date. Why? 
It doesn't last. It's not eternal. Francis Chan also has a great quote, and he says that we should not be afraid of a failure. Because you fail in life, right? We should not be afraid of a failure, but we should be afraid at succeeding in life at things that really don't matter. We're killing it, man. I'm succeeding in life. Look at the accomplishments. Look at what I've acquired. Look at all of it. I've nailed it. We should be afraid of succeeding at things that really don't matter. That's why he ignores what we regard as significant, because it passes away. Instead, this God prizes what we regard as mundane. What we think is important, God says, nah. And what God says is important, we say, nah. And this is problematic. The writer of 1 Kings spends six chapters. He is not concerned with Ahab's success. He's not concerned with his cities or his ivory house. He's not concerned with any of that. He's really concerned with the fact of that Ahab, how he interacts with the word of God. Right? And we've got to be careful. I think we treat the word of God just like Ahab. That's mundane. It's not a big deal. We'd rather hear about the palaces and the cities. But look at the end of 1 John 2, 17. It says that all these things pass away, but... He that doeth the will of God abideth forever. That thing that you consider to be mundane, the word of God, the one who does the will of God, that's what God prizes. Why? Because that does not pass away. Listen to me. Do you know, and and you do know this, that the word of God tells every one of us how to live this life? There is nothing that's not covered. If you want to know how to be a man or a woman today in this world, the Bible tells you. If you want to know how to be a husband or a wife, the Bible tells you. If you want to know how to be a parent or a grandparent, the Bible tells you. If you want to know how to be a single believer, the Bible tells you. If you want to know how to be a good employee, the Bible tells you. If you want to know how to be a good employer, the Bible tells you. If you want to know how to be a good citizen, the Bible tells you. If you want to know how to resolve conflict and to make things right, and offer forgiveness. The Bible tells you. Why does God do this? Why? Because he that does the will of God abides forever. God has called out, is calling out, a new humanity. It's the church of Jesus Christ. And he's given us those instructions so that as he finds us where we're at as a man or a woman, he then, by his word and by his spirit, starts to transform us. And he does that for our good and for his glory. Listen to 1 John, I think it's chapter 4, verse 12. Listen to what John says. No man has seen God at any time. If any man, if, if we love one another, God dwells in us and his love is perfected in us. Hereby, Know we that we dwell in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. Do you know how do you know how this world sees the God that we just sang about? Behold our God. Do you know how they see him? They see him with by men and women 
whose lives have been transformed by the Spirit of God. They're not the same anymore. They're just not. Why? Because I just did my best. No, the Word of God and the Spirit of God is changing us. When that happens, those things abide forever. Why? Because God is glorified. He's glorified. This new community, this new creation that shouts the glory of God, this is what Newton calls solid joys and lasting treasures. Are we building the kingdom? We get to verse 39 of our text, all of our accomplishments, and it's designed to leave our success in tatters and to lead us to repentance. What are we living for? My friend, listen to me. When we stand before Christ, he is not going to ask you about your beer can collection or your coins or your bells or your, yeah, whatever, whatever you're collecting. It's not going to come up. Have you done the will of God? Are you building the kingdom? And so we should reexamine our accomplishments. What are you living for? What am I living for? What are we doing here? Why are we here? Why are we gathering? Why do you come every week? God says, I'm building a kingdom. We're part of that kingdom. He that does the will of God abides forever. So that's accountability. Let me just quickly talk about compromise now. Compromise. Verses 41 through 53 of our text, it seems like it's just like, ah, wrap this thing up. All these verses thrown together. Like, okay, let's just finish up now. Um, Because the book is coming to a close. But what we need to remember is this this morning. That 1 Kings is not the end. 1 and 2 Kings goes together. It goes together. The story doesn't end until 2 Kings 25. So what is the writer doing? Here's what he's doing. As we come to the end, and there's all these ideas about, here's a, there's Judah, and here's Israel, and here's this king and that king. He is going to give these kingdoms a glance of what's to come. Because he mentioned some funny stories here that don't make much sense if we don't know what's happening. And what he's going to tell us is, through their compromise, a storm is coming. A terrible storm is coming. Number one, he looks at Judah. We know of Jehoshaphat. He loved the Lord. He loved the Lord. There was no doubt about it. He served God. He followed him. His kingdom wasn't following after Baal. He was a real reformer. But notice in our text, 1 Kings 22, verse 44, there's a verse here, and it seems harmless. It seems like it might even be good. Verse 44, And Jehoshaphat made peace with the king of Israel. Oh, that's nice. Here's a godly king who makes peace with an ungodly king, they're all making nice, and isn't that great? But that is in there, not to say it's a good thing, that's a negative alliance in this writer's mind. How do you know that? Well, here's how I know that. Um, Several weeks ago, I was confused at the end of this text. It's like, what's the story with all these ships being broken? It doesn't make any sense. Why would you throw that in there? I mean, you're talking about the king, and you're talking about north, the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom. What's the deal with that? Well, in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, God sheds light on what happens here between Jehoshaphat and the northern kingdom. Look what it says. Same story that we just read at the end of 1 Kings 22. And after this, did Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, join himself with Ahaziah, king of Israel, that's Ahab's son, 
who did very wickedly. And he joined himself with him to make ships, to go to Tarshish, and they made the ships in Ezion Geber. Verse 37. And El Aezer, the son of a guy with a really hard name to pronounce, prophesies against Jehoshaphat. Here's what he says. Because you have joined yourself with Ahaziah, the Lord has broken my works, and the ships were broken, and they were not able to go to Tarshish. Here we have the accomplishments of, of Ahab don't mean anything, but now we start to see this compromise with Jehoshaphat, a godly man who loved the Lord, but this compromise causes him real trouble, and it gets worse. Ahab's daughter will marry Jehoshaphat's son, Jehoram. Athaliah is her name. It sounds like a really sweet name, but if you follow the story through, Athaliah outlives all these guys, and she becomes a grandma. And you know what grandmas do, right? They make cookies. They make muffins. They make blankets. You know what she does? She kills all her grandkids. Not the grandma you want. Except for one who escapes. She tries to completely destroy the royal line of David. You know where she came from? She's Ahab's daughter. And I promise you that Jehoshaphat, when he made peace with Ahab, had no idea that his son would marry this woman who would try to destroy everyone in his royal line. This compromise seemed insignificant, but it was devastating. Devastating. There's something we ought to learn this morning. We ought to learn something about discernment today. It is possible for believers who genuinely love God, genuinely love God, without exercising godly discernment in their decisions. I'm going to talk to you as a pastor now. Sometimes I look around at the church and say, why in the world are Christian people so messed up? Anybody ever wonder that? I know. I wonder sometimes why I'm so messed up. But the truth is, look around like, what, why is the believer, why does it seem like those of darkness are smarter than the children of light? That those who know the Lord and genuinely love him, how is it? that their lives are so fouled up. And the truth is, for many of them, not all, but this idea of discernment, that, that I, my faith, my love for Christ is a Sunday deal. Sunday I listen to church, Sunday I raise my hand, Sunday I praise Him, but Monday through Saturday I listen to the world and don't practice godly discernment. Our faith has no carryover in our business. That's why you have Christian businessmen and women who are ripping people off. By the way, that's wrong. You didn't know? Christian? There's no carryover into our families. We do our church thing. We bring our big family Bibles in. We're all smiling after we fought the whole way in. Good to see ya. You might as well leave your Bible in the pew. That's as far as it's gone. 
There's no carryover to our finances. There's no carryover to moral matters at all. And so the church looks like the world. Why? Because I think good people have no discernment. And the problem is it begins to drift. Christian, you and I can't imagine how far we begin, how far we can drift when we start drifting. You ever look around and say, I would never happen to me. Oh my goodness, can you believe what happened to them? Yeah, I can, because every one of us, when we start to drift, we never can understand how far we drift. We never drift into holiness, ever. We don't drift into godliness, ever. It's intentional. It's an intentional pursuit. As we mature gradually, purposefully, one choice at a time. Say, I think I've made dumb decisions. You probably have. So have I. How do we correct that? Stop making them. Number one, stop making dumb decisions without ever consulting the word of God. Stop it. Number two, you're in a church, the pillar and ground of the truth. Ask someone. In the multitude of counselors, there is safety and wisdom. Be careful. So we see that in Jehoshaphat. Now we turn to Ahaziah and Israel, Ahab's son. His compromise goes from just, yeah, dabbling. Now he's serving and worshiping Baal. And little does he know that Israel's future is done. This drifting will lead to the Assyrians coming down and destroying the whole lot. Listen to me. We don't know what the end has in store once we start to drift. These fellas, at the end of 1 Kings chapter 22, have no idea what's coming. None. And it starts because their accomplishments were wrong, especially for Ahab, and they start to compromise. Back in 1864, during the, the U.S. Civil War, there was, a, there was a Union general named John Sedgwick. And he was, he was positioning infantry troops on this hill against the Confederates. His chief of staff was standing right next to him. And as he was positioning these troops, um, the Confederates, sharpshooters, start shooting from about a mile away. And you could hear, you could hear the bullets whistle. They would whistle as they, they came out the barrel. You could whistle. And when they whistled, everyone would hit the ground. Everyone. So they're standing there, the general, his chief of staff, soldiers around. The whistle comes. Everybody hits the ground except the general. True story. And Sedgwick says, he laughed at the guys and said, those guys could not hit an elephant from that distance, from a mile away. So everybody got up. They heard another whistle. Everyone hit the ground. And the general then took his boot and nudged the guy like, you fool, get up. And he got up and said, yes, sir, but I still believe in dodging, and moved on his way. A third whistle came. And after this whistle, the general's chief of staff turned to say something, and when he did, there was a hole underneath the general's eye spurting blood. He fell over, he was dead. Do you know why? Well, of course he got shot, that's a no-brainer. He thought that those Confederate troops were using short-range rifles. They weren't. They had a British-made Whitworth, which was a hexagonal 45 caliber sniper rifle 
with a telescopic lens. And they could hit an elephant from that range. Matter of fact, they could hit a man under his eye from that range. Christian, listen to me. We've got to be serious. Some of us, we're making decisions that are destroying our lives, our families, and our futures. And if you could see what's coming, I promise you, you would stop. But you can't. But we can. Do you understand that? Because here's the truth this morning. We know what's coming. If all of the prophecies that we've looked at so far, and the prophecies of the Old Testament have all come to fruition, we can know and be guaranteed that the prophecies of the future will come to fruition as well. And so we know that judgment is coming. It's coming. It is appointed unto man once to die, and after this, the judgment. There is no hope. There is no safety. There is no religion. There is no, I'm going to do good until sort of it outweighs the bad. There's none of that. If you die without Christ, you will die and split hell wide open. Judgment is coming. Why would Jesus die on a cross if there was any other way to purchase salvation? It doesn't make sense. The reason he died is because without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. The guilty soul will die. And you've got a choice this morning. Either the wrath of God will be poured upon your head and you will suffer for your sins, or you today can repent and believe and hit the ground with your knee or your heart and spare yourself from the judgment that will come. We know what's coming. My friend, today, let today be the day that you trust Christ as your Savior. You can talk to me, you can talk to Pastor Dan, you can talk to anybody here. We would take the Bible and show you how you can know this. We know what's coming. And believer, we know what's coming. We know the trumpet will sound. The dead in Christ will be raised incorruptible. And we which are alive and remain will be transported to meet the Lord in the air and so shall we ever be with him. That's coming. That's a reality. That when this poor lisping, stammering tongue lies silent in the grave, in a sweeter, nobler song, I'll sing his power to save. So, if that's the case, if that's coming, all these things are passing, may we this morning stop and think about our accomplishments. What are we accomplishing for the kingdom of Christ? And may we stop and think about our compromises. The small decisions we make every day. Ah, it's no big deal. It's just, it's just a degree. Just a degree. Yeah. Just a degree. Follow that degree, and before you know it, you're way off course. Maybe this morning, heed the word of God as we evaluate our own accomplishments and our own compromises this morning. Let's pray.